Good morning again, everyone. Um, I'd, like to, um, I'd like to show you someone. And I'd like you to turn to the person next to you and discuss who that is. All right, he's coming up on the screen right now. I promise you he is. There he is. Who's that? Charles and Heston? It's Moses, yeah. Everyone knows. Everyone knows that, Charles, uh, that Moses bared this stunning resemblance to Charlton Heston and was very American with a big beard. And uh, there he is. That is, uh, that is uh, Charlton Heston, of course, in uh, the famous film, The Ten Commandments. And um, here is one of the commandments. We're going to return to that passage that Kesselwer read to us because some of it sounds, and some of it sounds wonderful, and we're going to explore all of that. This, as uh, you've been told, is the introduction to this series that we're going to follow over the next month, the Oasis Nine Habits. As Dave said, around uh, the Oasis world, in other countries, in all of our schools, for all of our staff, for all of our students, for our students here, for the children across at Johanna, uh, for the staff across at Johanna and the staff here, we are exploring this with all our churches, all our schools. Oasis Nine Habits. But um, speaking of Charlton and Moses and the uh, Tablets of Stone, here's one of the Ten Commandments. This was, this is, as I'm sure you know, commandment number four. I will read it to you. And then we get, there's a little bit of, well, there's a little bit of a task to do. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, the seventh day of the week, uh, it's the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, You shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, made it different. Do not work on the Sabbath day. Got that? Straightforward, isn't it? Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Now, of course, we tend to think of the Sabbath day as Sunday, whereas in actual fact it's Saturday, which is why Jews worship on uh, together on Saturday. We worship on Sunday, not because it's the end of the weekend. No, that's a really kind of secular idea, because it's the first day of the week, and it's the first day of the week on which Jesus rose. That's why we cut. So the idea of worship together is to just get ourselves centered, you know, facing true north for the week. We don't want to be a couple of degrees off because, whoa, haywire through the week. So we take this time to center ourselves again, find our true north. That's what Sunday's all about. So the Sabbath day, Christians have kind of shoved the Sabbath onto Sunday, and this has become the day on which... um, you know, we rest. But here's the thing. Good, good commandment. We all believe in the Ten Commandments, yeah? 
Yeah. So here's the thing. I'd like you, you know the people that you were just having that all too brief conversation with when Dave said, talk to one another. I'd like you to talk to them and I'd like you to imagine, right? What if you, uh, what if you are a fireman and a friend's house is burning down on the Sabbath day, right? You're not supposed to do any work. You're a fireman and your mate's house is burning down. It's the Sabbath day. What do you do? Because you've got to keep the Ten Commandments. Into that discussion you're having, can I interject this? It is, can you, as a Christian, obeying that commandment, actually help put the fire out? Or... Can you only call your mates at the fire station and tell... You can say, I'm a Christian, I'm keeping the Sabbath. Can you get involved in putting the fire out or do you have to call someone else? There you go. What do you think? You've got to keep the Ten Commandments. You're supposed to be discussing this. So So let me add another dilemma which I want you to discuss. Is this a commandment for individuals, in which case... You're a fireman, what should you be doing on the Sabbath? The seventh day, not a Sabbath. It says the seventh day, Saturday or our Sunday. Okay, but here's the thing. Is it for individuals or is it for the whole of society? In which case, I'd like you to discuss, should the fire station be open at all on Sunday? Discuss. Okay, you see, it's really quite difficult, isn't it? It seems pretty straightforward. People say, I believe the Bible, I believe everything in it, I believe the Ten Commandments, and we keep the Ten Commandments. But the truth is, it's really hard to keep the Ten Commandments because actually every one of us knows that if you're a fireman and there's a fire and it's on the Sabbath day and you've been working for six days, you will attempt to put it out. And we all know that we need the fire station to be open seven days a week, just as we need accident and emergency and our hospitals open seven days a week and our utilities companies and our buses and the tube and the list goes on and on and on and on. So here's what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. Um, There are only three ways ever invented in all of history of making moral choices. There's lots and lots and lots of different variations, but in the end, it all boils down, all of humanity's wrestling with how do you determine the best way to live and how do you judge right from wrong and make wise moral choices, all boils down to three core approaches. Approach number one, technically, uh, uh, is called deontological ethics. It's actually a kind of rule book or obligation ethics. Ten Commandments. The problem with living by rules, as we just demonstrated, is they don't always work. The problem with living by rules is you make rules and then you get stuck. So you've got to... um, (laughs) I'm I'm very aware. Some of you live... Hey, Marianne, how are you doing? It's, everybody's watching you get a drink. Have a seat next to Dave. Your hair's looking lovely today, by the way. Um, 
So, deontological ethics, deon uh, is a Greek word for obligation. And there are only three ways in the whole of a humanity's experience of deciding how to make moral choices. Deontological ethics is the first. You choose a set of rules and then you live by those rules and you always apply those rules. They're solid, they're set in stone, they're absolute. But like we just said, the problem is that sometimes the rules don't fit. And the other problem is that the longer you go on, the more rules you have to make and the rules become a straitjacket until you end up in a state... In, in, in a, a nation state with endless, endless legislation and some of it, well, the law has become an ass. Deontological ethics, rule book ethics, obligation ethics don't do the job. And so there was a huge swing away from that. It happened, uh, in the, um, it, it happened in the Middle Ages, really, and on into the... the first half of the last millennium, and eventually um, it produced some, uh, I'm getting too deep here and I don't want to bore you with, by, by the year 1800 or so, it had come to fruition, and it's called situation ethics. Well, it's called consequentialism, actually, consequential ethics. Situation ethics, uh, utilitarian ethics, are all part of the same thing. It said, you can't live your life by rules because the rules are always sluggish and they don't work. So we've got to find a new way of making moral choices. Consequentialism, situation ethics. If it feels good, do it. In other words, chuck the rule book out uh, out the window. The problem with the fireman who's reading the fourth commandment and thinks he can't go to answer a fire call because it's on the Sabbath and he's not allowed to work on the Sabbath is that he's been far too legalistic. Surely you're just not going to get the spirit of everything and trust your own leading. If it feels good, do it. That's situation ethics. I'm my own boss. I make my own rules through life. And actually, that's massively popular in our culture now. Don't tell me what to do. I know what to do. If it feels good to me, I'll do it. The problem is, how do we know it's good until we've done it? And how many people do you know who say, if only I could go back and live that year again? We end up in a load of trouble. So, utilitarianism um, rethought all this and it said what we really need is an ethic that's about doing what feels good but you've got to set a criteria. The greatest good for the greatest number of people for the greatest length of time. A philosopher called Jeremy Bentham said that. That's what we've got to achieve. No rules, they don't work. Just think about what's the greatest good for the greatest number of people for the greatest length of time. And that is why we've got millions of migrants swarming across Europe trying to find security and hope and help and rescue. Because those who took decisions to break up countries, create new borders, um, manipulate wars, think about the supply chain of our oil or whatever, 
often did so believing they were doing what was best, but actually ending in a situation where we create far more havoc and mayhem in people's life, lives than can ever be imagined. Take another little example of that. At the end of the First World War, the Great War, they called it, the war to end all wars, they called it, the Brits and the Americans and the French sat down in Versailles with the Germans and imposed on the German people the Treaty of Versailles. Some of you are students of history and you will know that the commander-in-chief of the Allied forces at that time, his name was General Foch, he was, um, he was French, on the day the treaty was finally signed, he said, this is no peace, it's just an armistice. It will lead us back to war within 20 years. It imposes on the German people and it humiliates them. No one listened. The Second World War started 20 years and a hundred and something days after that date. The treaty wasn't signed until uh, uh, 1919, not in 1918. So what we think can work out well often works out badly. So rules don't work. They're blunt. And trust in our own judgment doesn't work because often we don't see the consequences of an action. It turns out differently. There's a third way. There's only one other way. It's called formally virtue ethics. Live within a trusted story. We're not competent to be our own lawgivers, our own guides. We need to find guidance in something deeper and something more meaningful. And virtue ethics was first introduced a long time ago by a man you've all heard of. He lived 350 years before Jesus. He was called, um, he was called Aristotle. Aristotle said, the only way to live is to live within a story. What you do is you set out your story and the goal of your life. He called that the telos of life. Telos, we know that word. We talked about it a little bit before here, actually. Telos, we know that um, Greek word because we use it for television and telephone and telegraph and telescope and all of those telly words. And if you think about them, what do they all have in common? They all help you see or hear something that's a long way in the distance. Telephone, television. I can see something that's a long way away from me. And what Aristotle said is it's no good living by rules and it's no good just making up as you go along. What you've got to do is you've got to look at intentionally at your long-term telos or goal and you've got to make decisions every day that are linked to where you want to be. What's your goal? Where do you want to give get to. And what Aristotle said is you've got to live intentionally towards that goal. Instead of meandering through life and hoping for the best, you've got to say, where do I want to be? Where am I headed? What's my telus? What's my ultimate goal? And make decisions that fit in with that. To take an example, 
um, someone calls you and they ask it, this week I'm talking about, someone calls you, a friend of yours calls you and they ask you to go out with them on Wednesday night for a drink. Do you go or not? It's an impossible question to answer unless you know what your telos is. If you have a really important interview on on Thursday morning for a job that you've been planning for for a long, long time, or you've got an exam that's coming up on Friday or next week and you know you're behind, or you've got to get um, an essay in, or there's a bit of planning you need to do for a project you're working on, or you've got a prior commitment to someone else, perhaps your telos will tell you that you shouldn't be going out for the drink. If your telos in life, it, you know, if you're uh, uh, someone who's the leader of a church and actually your job is in life besides other things to extend some help and support to people and you know that this person is in trouble, you might abandon the essay that you've really got. To, I'm talking about real life for me. The, <laughs> it happens to be a book in my case. The book that you're writing and you've got this horrendous deadline and you've already missed. But you still will make a judgment that actually I'll fall behind by another day because I need to be with that person. But unless you're guided by your tellus, you'll always end up making wonky choices. Does that make sense? Uh, thus, thus far. So what um, Aristotle said is this, is what you've got to do is think about where you want to get to, your ultimate goal, And then you've got to develop habits in life to help you achieve your ultimate goal. So, if your ultimate goal in life is to to be, um, be known as a generous person, you've got to develop a habit now so that you become generous. Which means, every day, reaching into your pocket and paying and giving. If you want to become known as an honest person, you need to develop from today the habit of not lying. Not even little lies. Not even white lies. Not even smoothing it over, making you look a bit better than you are lies. I I want to be known as honest. If that's my telos, I'd better start with the way I speak over coffee here. Every day practicing habits that will slowly turn me into the person I want to be and move me towards my telus. And um, so far, so good. Um, What uh, Aristotle said, he said this, there are nine, he worked out, he worked out that there were nine great habits that anyone needed to achieve in Greek society to become the kind of person they ought to be. He set the ultimate goal in life, the telos of life, as well-being. He called it uh, the good life, well-being, which is why we got that phrase in English, actually, the good life. It came from Aristotle. He said, pursue the good life, pursue well-being. And he said, there are nine habits you need to develop in life to become that kind of person. And the first one was Sophia, which means wisdom. And he said it sat above all the other eight virtues. And then there was this other one, uh, Megla 
Psyche. Psychia. Yeah? And uh, we come to that word a little bit more in a minute. But megalopsychia is to be magnanimous, to be benevolent. It's about a greatness of soul. And Aristotle said this was the virtue that was the crowning glory. If you got all the other virtues right, you would become magnanimous. You would be a great soul. You would be benevolent. You would care for others. Aristotle said this. Now, you're probably wondering, why did he come to church and I'm talking about Aristotle? Because Aristotle totally influenced the whole of the writing of the New Testament, though he's not mentioned there. Paul is often writing about Aristotelian thought, Aristotelian philosophy, as you'll see. And the stuff we sung about this morning and the Bible reading we had is a direct reaction to or response to Aristotle who just dominated the scene. I mean, he was the big guy. He was like Shakespeare is to us. He'd only lived 350 years before, all, uh, before the New Testament was written. Everyone was thinking about what Aristotle had to say. Aristotle said this. He said, living life is like hitting the target. You've got to hit the bullseye all the time. You develop your virtues and then you've got to live by them. And when you live by them well, it's like hitting a virtue, uh, hitting the target, the bullseye. Here's what Aristotle said. He said, and if you don't hit the bullseye, he was talking about archery rather than darts. He said, if you don't hit the bullseye, it's called sin. And if, you ever, if you're a member of an archery club, has anybody ever been a member of an archery club? If you become a member of an archery club, here's an interesting thing. If you miss the bullseye and you fall short, it's called sinning. Because our culture is massively influenced by Aristotle. It's where that concept uh, came from. Missing. How many of you have been told... To sin is to miss the target. You've been told that? Aristotle thought that, and he said it, and we all believe it. So what he said was, here's one of his virtues. Is one of his virtues is courage. You see, he thought that everybody should have courage, and uh, that was hitting the bullseye. But he said, if you overshoot and you end up too high and you miss the bullseye because you get it in the top of the target or way over the top of the target, that's a vice. That's one of his words. A vice, he said, of excess. And he said, the vice of excess that goes with courage, this is just an example, is rashness. It's too much confidence and too little fear. And so you aim over the top. And he said there was also a vice of deficiency. And the, du- devi- uh, <laughs> the deficiency vice that goes with courage is cowardice, which is too little confidence and too much fear. So you miss courage if you've got too much confidence and too little fear, shoot over the top, and you shoot underneath, you enter another vice if you've got too little confidence and too much fear. Uh, today, it, he could have said... Uh, living responsibly, something we all want to develop, is to be um, a responsible spender. And perhaps the vice of excess is to be a shopaholic. And the vice of deficiency is to be a cheapskate. That's what he taught. 
He taught, as we've just seen, that the greatest crowning glory, once you were courageous and, uh, and once you had wisdom, the greatest crowning glory was to be magnanimous, as I've just said. And he said that the Greeks all cared lots about honour. Honour was a big thing in Greece. You were magnanimous. You were courageous. You were wise. And that made you magnanimous. Your life was together. That made you magnanimous. To overshoot being magnanimous was to be vain and boastful. But here is his vice of undershooting it. To be humble. Humility was to undershoot. It was a vice. It was a failing. So you've got to be magnanimous. You've got to be wise. You've got to be filled with courage. But you must not be humble. Because for Greeks, honour was everything. Why did they think like this? Because Aristotle said, the way you live grows out of the story you believe in because our behaviours always follow our beliefs in the end. We believe one thing and in the end it enters our behaviour. We start behaving that way. So if someone feels nothing of themselves, it enters their behaviour, doesn't it? You see them hanging their head. You see them shy. You see them retiring into the corner. If someone's too full of themselves, they never shut up talking, a bit like me right now. Our Our beliefs make their way out in our behaviours. If we decided there's a group of people who we don't like, we offish with them, etc., etc., etc. So, let's uh, move on. The New Testament writers, Paul and the rest, they understand all this. They They live in Greece. They understand where it's coming from. But they have a different take on things. Where did Aristotle get his story from? You live within the story that you accept. What was his story? I'll tell you what his story was. It was the story of the, what called the Titans and the Olympians, you know, the, the, the war of the Titans, etc., etc., the battle of the gods. You can go and see all these films now. The, the films are all actually based on the Greek mythology, the Greek stories about, uh, about creation. So, Who was, uh, you may know that the Titans were the father and mother gods and then the Olympians overthrew the Titans in a great clash, the war of the Titans. There was this great clash and the Olympians, the children, rose to power and the leader of the children was called Zeus. You've heard of Zeus, haven't you? The god of power, pow, 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 wiping people out all over the place. He committed adultery, he had all sorts of lovers, he had affairs with his half-brothers and his half-sisters, he waged war, he wiped out people he didn't want, but Zeus was the god of power. And then he had a, he had a sister called Hades and etc., etc., yet all their names are famous. They've entered our thought. You may have heard me say before that Aristotle pervades the way we think. And everybody always goes, no, he doesn't, but I'm telling you he does. So um, all of this, so, but the story was the story of the gods who were powerful and Greeks had to have honour and they had to have wisdom and they had to be magnanimous. My world's going well, I'll be magnanimous to you. Aristotle was actually a health and wealth person because he said if you were living well, you would be powerful and you would be rich and you would be healthy because Zeus was powerful and rich and healthy. 
And all his nine virtues were there to make you powerful and rich and healthy, which is why wisdom was number one. And being magnanimous summed it all up. The New Testament writers, like Paul, they know you can't live by rules. They know rules don't work. They know you can't make it up yourself. They agree with Aristotle that, yeah, you've got to live inside a story, but their story is completely different. This is what Kessler read to us. This is Paul, Galatians. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. How many fruit of the Spirit are there? Just do a quick count. It's nine. What coincidence. Paul knows that Aristotle, the leading thinker in his culture, has nine virtues. But here are nine different ones. Do you know who Aristotle's greatest student was? Um, There's no reason why you should. But when I tell you, you will. Um, there's, there's a history uh, written, the life of, um, uh, the, uh, um, well, the life of this guy, so I won't tell you who it is. Aristotle's greatest student was Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great became Aristotle's personal student at the age of 14, and Aristotle tutored him until he was 16, and he taught him his virtues. And then Alexander the Great went on to conquer the world. The only reason we think of him more nicely than we do of Hitler is that he lived longer ago. He was a butcher. He conquered the world. He wiped out people. He massacred whole uh, whole civilizations. He was a genocidal idiot. He wept at the age of 30 in his biography, we're told this. He wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. But his biographer um, says this, that... He was a great strategist, but he never conquered his anger. He wanted everything. By the age of 32, he was dead. And by the age of 33, his kingdom had completely broken apart because all of his lieutenants had inherited the same story and the same virtues, and they fought and waged war against one another, and the whole empire collapsed. You see, what you believe works out in the way you behave. So, says Paul, there are nine virtues that lead to your telos. Who's your telos? Who's this a description of? Jesus, it seems to me. Paul is saying Jesus is full of love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That was Jesus. These nine character traits are ones that are really worth adopting. These are habits that are really worth pursuing because they get us to our telos of being like Jesus. Does that make sense? Now, what was, um, what was Aristotle's first one? It was wisdom. Yeah? What was his, lo- his biggest override? Being magnanimous, being in control and being kind. What's the first one here? Love, agape, self-surrender, not wisdom. What's the last one? Self-control, not the control of others. But let's... Change the emphasis. Adopt these nine. Against such there is no law. Paul gets it. You can't live by rules and regulations. It doesn't work. There's no law. Live like this. Live from your telus. Imbibe these habits and you'll live really well. So here's some, just this, there's a, a lot of this, but you recognize this, don't you? They uh, read it all weddings. You know, it's kind of 
compulsory, right? Um, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, if I'm etc. etc. If I have all knowledge and understand all mysteries, but do not have love again, nothing. Who's who's Paul saying this to? He's saying it to a culture who swallowed Aristotle, who think that wisdom. If I got all wisdom, all knowledge, but I don't have love, Aristotle didn't even put love on the list, and certainly not agape love, because for him humility was missing the target and falling short. And Paul is saying, no, what Aristotle left off is actually central. The example of Jesus is our telos. We're living a different way. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy, etc., etc. And look at that. Love never fails. Paul's saying, wisdom will let you down. (laughs) You won't always be able to be magnanimous. You won't always be fit and healthy and powerful. Love never fails. Here's Paul writing a different, uh, in in, uh, 1 Corinthians, different place. Where is the wise person? Where is the philosopher of this age? Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Everyone knew Greeks thought wisdom was the number one. But we preach humility, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, to Aristotle and Plato and all those boys. They think it's about power. They think it's about wisdom, but actually it's about the opposite. So the same passage goes on. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And Peter, writing another New Testament writer, he says this, the stone which the builders, who were the builders? The builders of Greek society, Roman society? (gasps) It was Aristotle. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We live by different values. We march to a different drum. We are not people who seek power for itself. We're called to a different lifestyle. We're called to a different set of ethics. Being a follower of Christ isn't about sitting in a church on a Sunday, a building like this on a Sunday morning, though being together at the start of the week to get our orientation right, to get through north, to make sure we're not off course for the week, reminding ourselves of who we are, supporting one another, encouraging one another is. This is Paul, right? Well, it's not Paul, actually. It's Paul quoting a song that they used to sing in the first church in uh, Philippi. He's quoting it to the Philippians. It's in Philippians chapter 2. He simply says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for its own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not Aristotle, not Plato, not that stuff that tells you you've got to be wise and rich and powerful and strong. No, the way to live, to be fully human is to surrender yourself and be like Jesus, to lay down your life. Which is why over the next Sunday mornings and evenings, we're going to do a different habit in the morning, different one in the evening. So we're going to do this in a month. The sm- uh, uh, each evening will be different to the morning. Sometimes we follow. Uh, but we are following these nine habits. Why does Oasis have these nine habits? Because they're a different way of talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus is our telos. We're going to be looking at them over the next few weeks. Why have we built this website? Why has Matt built this website this week? And, and you know, earlier, you know, when I was saying there's Nathan, there's, of course, Josh and Roe, and there's so many people have helped this week, done so much work on this. Why are we launching this national campaign tomorrow morning? Because we march to this drumbeat. Because our telos is to be like Christ. Against this, there's no law. As I practice these habits, I slowly learn to think like Jesus. I'll always fall short. Trust me, I always do fall short. But this is the big story that we belong to. For those of you into words like this, this is our meta-narrative. This is our big story. This is how we live. We live for Jesus, and over the next few weeks, we follow this example.